Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2012 AWP conference in Chicago. The recording features Jessica Anthony and Alexander Hemmen. I'm with Alexander Hemmen at the Association for Writers and Writing Programs conference in Chicago, Illinois. Alexander Hemmen is the author of The Lazarus Project, which was a finalist for the 2008 National Book Award and National Book Critics Circle Award, and three collections of short stories, The Question of Bruno, Nowhere Man, which was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Love and Obstacles. Born in Sarajevo, Hammond wrote his first story in English in 1995. He was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2003 and a Genius Grant from the MacArthur Foundation in 2004. His fiction and essays appear regularly in The New Yorker, Guernica, and elsewhere. Sasha, thank you for being here. Thank you. Would you mind starting us off with a brief excerpt from The Lazarus Project? Sure. I am a reasonably loyal citizen of a couple of countries. In America, that somber land, I waste my vote, pay taxes grudgingly, share my life with a native wife, and try hard not to wish painful death to the idiot president. But I also have a Bosnian passport I seldom use. I go to Bosnia for heartbreaking vacations and funerals. And on or around March 1st, with other Chicago Bosnians, I proudly and dutifully celebrate our Independence Day with an appropriately ceremonious dinner. Strictly speaking, the Independence Day is February 29th, a typically Bosnian convolution. I suppose it would be too weird and unsovereignly to celebrate it every leap year, so it is an annual chaotic affair taking place at some suburban hotel. Bosnians come in droves in the early, parking their cars. They might run into a fight over parking space for the disabled, a couple of men swing their crutches at each other trying to determine who might be more impaired the one whose leg was blown off by a landmine, or the one whose spine was damaged by a beating in a Serbian camp. While waiting in the vestibule for no discernible reason, to enter the preposterously named dining hall, Westchester or Windsor or Lake Tahoe, my fellow double citizens smoke, as numerous signs informed them that smoking is strictly prohibited. Once the door is open, they rush toward the white-coated tables with an excess of glasses and utensils driven by a poor people's affliction, the timeless feeling that plenty never means enough for all. They spread the napkins in their laps, they hang them on their chests, they have a hard time explaining to the wait staff that they would like to eat their salad with the main dish, not before it. They make disparaging remarks about the food, which then turn into contemptuous contemplation of American obesity. And pretty soon, whatever meager Americanness has been accrued in the past decade or so entirely evaporates for the night. Everybody, myself included, is solidly Bosnian. Everybody has an instructive story about cultural differences between us and them. Of these things, I sometimes wrote. There's a line that I um, am especially struck with in the book. It was the Bosnian manner. Nobody asked you anything. You had to make your story be heard. Is that a particularly autobiographical statement? And maybe can you talk about the impulse for the novel? Well... Uh, it's a general statement that uh, applies uh, partially because in the narrator, Brick, he's all about us and them. There is Americans and Bosnians, and he's invested into establishing or dealing with differences. I'm far less invested in that for a number of reasons, but I'm interested in the ways in which those differences are established. There is, however, a proclivity among Bosnians to interrupt and 
um, have a less democratic conversation, yes, um, <laughs> at least in my family. <laughs> uh, so as for the book, it was a while ago, but I had come across a book called An Accidental Anarchist, which was a recounting of the Lazarus Arago affair, as it really happened, including the fact that some questions could not be answered. But the book featured a couple of photos of Lazarus sitting dead in the chair, which also in my book, in addition to the amazing story of Lazarus Arago and the sadness thereof. There were also those photos which I found and find striking. And I uh, decided to find a way to include those photos in my book, and I decided to write a book with those photos. And then it took me a little while to figure out how exactly to do that, and then to write a book. So the photographs came before the language, the words. Right. In what ways do you feel that these images are sort of doing the work of narrative in the book? Why did you feel this desire? I don't know if they're doing the work of narrative. In fact, I think they're in the book precisely because they cannot do that work. Mm -hmm. It was, I thought, a way to contrast the work that a photograph would do as opposed to a story. The photograph, when you see it, it's amazing in many ways, but it's even more amazing if you know the story behind it and the fact that Lazarus is dead in those photos and how he got there. And you realize when I first looked at the photo, there's a spot on the chin, which looks like a birthmark or a mole, but it's a bullet hole. And so with the story around it, the photo looks different. And I also thought that the narrative would look different or be different with a photo. Photos, you know, uh, Roland Bart used the term self-authenticating, at least until the digital photography era. What was in the photo was a physical trace of something that existed in some physical space. So there was always a reality behind that photo. And you could see the traces, physical traces of the reality in the photo. But you, what you didn't have inscribed in the photo is the story of it. And a literary text or story is not self-authenticating. It is a story. That is, language is not a, tra a physical trace of anything. It's a, a trace of, well, in literature, it's a trace of thoughts and emotions and questions and human experiences. And so I wanted those two things to, two modes of human expression, to interact and complicate. Like so much of your writing, the novel is packed with lines, which I think of as sort of temporary landings, sentence-level destinations, like... Home is where somebody notices your absence. And I'm just like everybody else because there is nobody like me in the whole world. Can you speak a little bit about your relationship to sentences in terms of the poetics of prose? I suppose I hear the music of sentences, or at least try to hear that. And also, Miles Davis said, I listen to what I can leave out. So when I think about it and write, I also listen to what I can leave out. But the music, I would not sacrifice meaning to music, the music of sentences of, of the language. But I hear it for whatever reason. And to me, those rhythms have to be respected, while at the same time the meaning is respected. It's a tricky thing to do, but it, it is a lot of fun. I like doing that. There are writers, and that does not, uh, this is not meant to disparage their writing. I can tell they do not hear their sentences from the language in the book. I can simply tell, and then that has been confirmed a couple of times. When I heard them read, you can tell they do not hear their own sentences. They might be brilliant in any number of other ways, but they do not hear that. For some reason, then my 
inner ear is attuned to that, and I pursue that. In some of the early stories, and in fact, in some later stories, I've actually counted beats in sentences, and then looked for words, and that would fit the, um, the rhythm pattern that I was, for some reason, looking for. I don't do that in every sentence, otherwise it would be poetry, whatever, right? but there, there are moments or passages when I thought it was important, and then I would do that. Who are a few writers who you would perhaps align yourself with in terms of musicality of style? And I dare not align myself <laughs> with Nabokov, but Nabokov is the patron saint of, of musical writing and also of brilliant images and also of brilliant thought. So uh, that often goes, and Nabokov certainly, it goes together. It's one cannot be separated from the other. Do you return to him? To oh, constantly. Mm -hmm. I, I, while I'm teaching this semester, Nabokov's. You're a prolific writer of nonfiction as well as fiction, and I'm curious about um, the way that you either choose your subjects or you find your subjects choosing you. Uh, I don't know. There's a method. Sometimes the New Yorker people ask me if I would like to write about this or that, or if I have something that I would like to write about. Sometimes I pitch it to them or someone else. There's, there are stories that I would like to tell, and for one reason or another, I've lost patience and cannot wait any longer to find a way to fictionalize those stories. That applies to some texts, but not others. So then finally, I write them. The, I had a piece in Grant about dogs, two dogs, and that came about because I was having breakfast with the editor of Grant and some other people, and I was telling that story, and they told me why don't you write that, thereby commissioning the piece. Um, so I write all that. So I wrote. Your essay, The Aquarium, published in June of The New Yorker, for the people who haven't perhaps read this piece yet on our podcast, this is an essay which chronicles the loss of, of your daughter, Isabel. But it is equally about imagination and language. I found myself taken especially with your own personal struggle to contain the dominance of your own imagination and how your older daughter's invention of an imaginary brother Mingus revealed something to you about the importance of fiction. Fiction, you say, had given your daughter as it gave you more lives. Do you feel that fiction is a basic evolutionary tool for survival? I do. Um, I wouldn't call it fiction, but storytelling. storytelling. Because fiction is a, it's sort of an arbitrary tag for one aspect of storytelling. But I have grown to believe, and, and to a large extent, watching my daughter come up with stories, that we process the world by creating stories about the world. And I don't mean this metaphorically, but literally. That at her level, to process experience and process the language that is necessary to relate to the experience, she invents stories. And they are not stories, like, you know, novels, but they're stories. And you can see, I can see, the struggles to make parts fit, and she doesn't have what we have, which might be uh, sometimes unfortunate, a need to complete it and print it, I mean, or, for example, print it. She doesn't have a need to complete those stories. They don't have to have a conclusion ending, they don't have to be rewarding in a way that, you know, a reading experience has to be rewarding. It is essential to the way you process experience in stories, because she's a child she just doesn't have enough experience for the language that she already possesses. 
So she has to come up with stories that would allow her to employ that language. Language, in other words, exceeds her experience. And, in fact, I would think that for a vast majority of people, language exceeds their experience. And it exceeds their immediate personal experience. And to engage with other people, to imagine alternative possibilities in your own life, to uh, imagine different outcomes of your actions, morally or any other way, you need stories. And I'm not talking about literary fiction, I'm talking about basic stories. And I think that's inscribed in the human brain. Joan Cage, the great avant-garde composer, was once telling a story <coughs> about going to a deaf room where all the sounds are muffled from the outside and inside because the walls are bad and all this. And he said the only two sounds he could hear was the beating of his, of his heart and the high-pitched sound of the nervous system. And he said his conclusion was that the future of music was insured. As long as there are living human beings, there will be music. And similarly, I think, as long as there are living human beings, there will be language, mm -hmm. and therefore there will be stories. Publishing might be out, <laughs> <laughs> but there will be story. Well, you said that language was actually what was sort of shaping this metaphor of the aquarium. It was shaping the experience for you. The people who could only speak to you in platitudes, and the people who, who didn't have any interest in knowing the truth of the language that you had to be using every day. Well, I think, suppose language for everyone, and for writers in particular, mm -hmm. can operate as, you know, for the purposes of comfort or tranquilization. That's where you go to protect yourself from the difficulties of the world. So that's just why cliches are rampant. I, I get hives when I go to a restaurant and the waiter addresses me as you guys. I hate you guys. It's crazy. It's surprising me crazy. Not for any particular reason. Not that I require, you know, sir. It's just that everyone's using you guys. It just drives me nuts. And I'm plotting, you know, conspiracies against you guys. How, what can I do with this to sabotage this? And there are other things too. The recent increase in the frequency of making the verbs like function as, you know, present tense continuous. I am liking this. If I like, I know, I see, that's all. You don't say, I'm seeing, you know what I mean? I mean, you yeah. do sometimes, but it's, it suddenly became... Anyway, it's an old man talk. My point is that there's a, there's a comfort in cliches and platitudes and already processed language where all the metaphors are already tucked in and absent as baffling, or no longer baffling. But then what literature does, what could do for writers, but also for readers, is push you in the direction where language is dangerously defamiliarized and made strange again. And so the instabilities of inner existence, the ontological quirks and bumps are exposed, or just the fact that we often do not know what we're talking about <laughs> at all. You know, there's a comfort if you think, I know what I'm talking about, and that guy knows what he's talking about. And so, isn't this just great? We know what we're talking about. Life, death, you know, all that. But there are ways to, and this is interesting to me as a reader and to me as a writer, how to impact the language. And then it becomes not dangerous in and of itself, but stops being a buffer against the world, but rather an access gateway to the world as it is. Yeah. Um, and that's difficult because it's, well, you know, it's emotionally exhausting, but also not all readers want that. You know, they want to curl up by the fireplace under the blanket and then pass out 
the glass of Chardonnay. I don't want to be kept up all night thinking, is my life meaningful? Are we going to live through the century? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, you know, it was Orwell, I think, who said, just like language can corrupt thought, thought corrupts language. And so oftentimes I feel like when I hear platitudes and cliches used... Yeah, no, but I mean, it's necessary for common communication. And we all use all, including many writers, including those who open up dangerous spaces uh -huh. for comfort and for communication with other people, for socializing, in the best sense. But that's not the only purpose of language. It's certainly not the purpose of literature, to provide comfort to people. You know, that's entertainment. That's what entertainment does. Entertainment provides comfort in various ways. Whether it's horror as a genre, or it's just, you know, someone else simulating themselves in front of 10 million viewers right now, and I'm curling up under the blanket by the fireplace, licking my Chardonnay. <laughs> in other words, there's literature, there's entertainment, and particularly soothing entertainment. There's literature that is, well, it's art. I like art. And if you want entertainment, <laughs> Sean Penn once said, if you want entertainment, you get two hookers and an eight ball. <laughs> That's entertainment. A book is, you know, it's, it's not good as entertainment. That's entertainment. Sasha, thank you so much for speaking with us today. This thank has been you. a great pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.com dot org.